Oh. I did have, when I had knee surgery, the <sighs> surgeon came in like the follow up, like day three or four. And like, he, he literally was just like talking to my knee. This He's like, you are beautiful. And he's talking to my knee. He like wasn't talking to me, so it wasn't wow. <laughs> uncomfortable, but I was like, you are, this is super bizarre. He found the right profession, it sounds like. Yeah. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the New Orleans Firefighters Association and other labor advocates are raising concerns after the city government was found to have used its network of criminal surveillance cameras to support actions against its own employees. NOLA Public School District officials asked Orleans Parish School Board to formally request that the New Orleans City Council rescind a recent resolution inserting city administration into an education grant process, one that historically went directly to the district. And the civil rights trial against David Wade Correctional Center is in its second week. We'll get an update. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Education reporter, Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter, Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Okay, Michael, up first, you found that the city of New Orleans' vast surveillance camera network you've written about extensively is also being used for internal employee investigations. How did you find out about this? Yeah, so so we found out about um, you know the, these kind of three um, specific cases because they were they they all went through the civil service commission and and the civil service commission is a a, a independent body that that kind of oversees the employment of, of most of the city's roughly four thousand uh, workers. So they deal with things like terminations, raises, compensation, all of that is dealt with with this kind of um, semi-independent body. And, you know, all three of these people, all three of these employees have been fired and all three of them ended up challenging that decision to the civil service. Um, And so, you know, the reason why we found out about them again is that, you know, during these hearings, um, the city, when justifying their terminations, brought up the fact that they had this video evidence of them showing some alleged misconduct. Again, uh, it's a small, um, you know, we're looking at three terminations that involve um, the camera system, but we really ultimately do not know at this point how extensive or how often the city employs its surveillance technology um, to kind of make these internal employment decisions because again the majority of employment decisions um, are not challenged in a civil service hearing um, so you know again most of these things happen behind the scenes and don't see them these specific cases happen to be brought to light challenged openly um, in a public hearing um, so that, that was kind of how we found out about this to begin with the timing of this is is the is the critical part because if they justified if they if they showed the camera or the videotape to justify the termination that would suggest that they'd been surveilling their employees Right. And not only that, um, the, the employees were not informed about um, the, the, the surveillance footage and how it was used, at least in two of the cases. We know that the employees were not notified that there was surveillance footage involved in their terminations in, in what justified their terminations until they challenged it. Um, so, you know, again, you know, we didn't know about it, you know, as journalists 
but the employees themselves didn't know about it until way late in the process. That, again, at least in, in two out of three of these cases. So it would suggest perhaps to some people whose hackles are now raised that this is a common practice? It, it's possible. It's possible. I, you know, I think the possibility that it sets up is, you know, hey, you know, someone's told that hey, you're fired because you've been late, you know, every day this week, um, you know, the city wouldn't necessarily need to tell the employee that, hey, we know you were late because we saw it on the real time crime camera. Again, that's a hypothetical situation. We really don't know. Um, but again, it's not like there's some, you know, master list or, or, or some documentation procedure for when when this happens. So, yeah, we, we don't really know the frequency. What was the result of the city showing this in, in evidence? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was used as evidence in the hearing. I mean, I, from what I can tell um, through reading through the, the hearing documents, it's, you know, the Civil Service Commission itself, the hearing officer that was appointed um, for these hearings, you know, didn't didn't um, disallow the city to do that or, or, or you know, make um, really any objections to it. But again, I'm not really sure if that's their role in this situation. You know, certainly, you know, it, during these hearings, um, at least one of them, um, one of the firefighters that was fired, he had union representation. And um, the reaction from his union representation was, was um, one of concern, um, you know, about how this system might be used more widely. Um, but from the Civil Service Commission itself, um, it doesn't, it, it, you know, it seems like it, it was, um, the city was allowed to use this footage as evidence. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, technically, you know, technically the Civil Service, the Civil Service Commission uses um, the civil service rules um, that they that they have written and approved to uh, to make these decisions about whether or not a, a firing or a, or another disciplinary action was done legally and properly. And you know, there's nothing there's nothing in the civil service rules about about this about this type of evidence. The the you know, I I, I think the 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 bigger question is that that I that the firefighters union is raising and I don't know if this is you know at least one of these cases has appealed to the uh, appeals court I don't know if it's going to come up there but is is you know given that given what the city built out this surveillance system for how it was sold to the public as sort of a anti-terrorism public safety you know emergency use sort of thing um you know is this is this what Michael's story referred to as this type of surveillance creep, which is, you know, just it, you set up a surveillance system for one purpose ostensibly, and then you use it for all sorts of other things. Right. right. And the reason why surveillance creep is, is kind of brought up so often is that, you know, again, it, it, it's not, you know, surveillance creep isn't always, you know, like a bait and switch. It's not like they, you know, built this system for one reason, but they were secretly planning to use this to watch employees. I mean, the, the thing with surveillance creep is it's just once you set up the system, it's there and, and people start coming up with new ways to use it. And since you have the infrastructure deployed already, it becomes really tempting for the city government or whoever controls the surveillance system to not use it in that way. You know, I mean, we have to oversee our employees. Why wouldn't we use you know, everything at our disposal to make sure that, you know, our employees aren't um, committing payroll fraud or whatever, um, you know, the, the, the allegation might be. And, you know, we mentioned, you know, there aren't really rules about this at the Civil Service Commission, but obviously the, the major thread through a lot of our reporting on surveillance is that there aren't really a lot of rules, period, on the surveillance system. You know, there, there is, you know, one four-page city policy that kind of governs the use of the real-time crime center, which is kind of the, the city surveillance hub. 
Um, and, and we passed some some limited laws in terms of um, surveillance and data collection. But again, you know, there aren't clear structures, you know, around this stuff. And um, one reason I got onto this story is that the city policy lists out a bunch of primary purposes for the surveillance system. And like Charles said, most of them deal with terrorism, deterring crime, collecting evidence on past crimes and, and enforcing laws. Um, you know, and the policy dictates that anything else, including any civil matter, um, you know, falls under this secondary use category, uh, you know, which kind of just requires additional documentation and justification um, in order to kind of retrieve footage. You know, I had put a public records request in um, late last year and uh, to see if any, you know, of these secondary requests had come in. And the city told us that they'd never gotten a secondary use request for, for the surveillance footage. Um, so that kind of got me wondering, you know, what the city's justification in, in this case would be because it would seem to fall under you know that secondary use category because this you know is a civil proceeding these happened you know these were internal department investigations into employee conduct these were not like nopd criminal investigations yeah and i think that that's that's a very good point i'm glad uh you looked into that however when you read the policy on on the use of the real-time crime center cameras um it was I don't think that this was an intended primary use when they wrote the policy. I don't think that they foresaw this. I think, you know, I think they wrote it, you know, as a policy to govern something that was that was primarily intended for violent crime. But there is a provision in the primary use um, that is extremely broad, which uh, which is to in collect evidence for the enforcement of any and all city laws and ordinances. Now, if you look in city law, it is technically a legal duty of department heads to discipline their employees, which means that they have to investigate their employees. So within that interpretation, this could be considered a primary use. It's just a primary use that no one ever anticipated for this system. Basically, yeah. So, you know, when we asked the city, why weren't there any secondary, you know, use requests for, for these three cases, you know, they said, yes, these fall, these actually fall under the primary use, as Charles is saying. And so, you know, like Charles is saying, in, in, in one case, you know, they said it was justified because, um, again, like he's saying, you know, the city law kind of lays out the city's employment structure and, and you know, lays out that department heads are responsible for, you know, the, the employment of, of the, the workers in their department and, and disciplining those employees when necessary. So because those things are laid out in city law, um, this furthers, you know, the goal of enforcing city laws. Um, you know, but that, you know, and in, in, in another case, they argued that um, it was justified because they were looking into a, a, a sewage and water board employee who was allegedly logging bogus overtime hours. Um, and they said that because that was potential payroll fraud, um, that would justify the use of the surveillance footage. Now, what's interesting about those justifications is that they imply that the surveillance system can be used for a really wide range of employment issues, right? So if, for example, we're using the, the payroll fraud example, that would imply that, you know, the, the city is justified watching any employee during work hours because that involves potential payroll fraud. Um, or in the case of, you know, the firefighter, um, you know, who was justified because the superintendent is legally responsible for disciplining employees, you know, that would imply that any, basically any employment decision, any employment discipline um, is kind of a valid primary use. 
All right. And so what are employee representatives saying about this? You had the, the fire union representative there. What else? Who else? Yeah. So, so the, the, the firefighters union, as well as a, a, a group of city employees um, uh, organizing under the name, the New Orleans City Workers Organizing Committee, um, which is seeking union representation right now, um, both kind of spoke out against this usage. Um, you know, I, I think it's kind of a nuanced case, but, but you know, if you ask the fire, fire department uh, union, at least um, the, the union president, um, he says that, you know, this is not what the city should be using the cameras for. Um, that city employees should not be subjected to kind of undue surveillance, you know, but I, you know, I think there's also a larger point of, you know, again, like Charles said, whether or not this technically fits under a primary use of the system is one thing, you know, whether it was an intended use, you know, whether it was really intended to be used for employee discipline is another matter. And so I don't know if there's a clear answer for, you know, whether or not the city should be using its surveillance system for employee discipline, but we do know that there's not a clear policy around that you know they haven't spelled out exactly when that should happen how the city should go about it whether employees need to be notified that footage is being pulled of them um whether employees should have be able to access footage if they want to make a complaint against a supervisor for example so you know again whether or not this should be happening is one question whether or not the city has set up any kind of policy or rules to govern that process um, we know that that doesn't exist yeah but i mean and this is and and to that point this is sort of the, the classic example of, of a type of surveillance creep, which is, which is you know, the city, which didn't set, to, set up this system to deal with civil service matters, um, it, had, it had cases that, you know, the city would say, well, these are particularly egregious cases. We're talking about someone allegedly committing pay payroll fraud. We're talking about someone, you know, falsifying an, an injury and, and, you know, maybe, maybe affecting the, the fire department's ability to respond to fires. So they kind of dipped their toe in in what could be called sort of egregious cases. But once they once they created that precedent, there there are literally no parameters for how they can use it in employment matters. So, you know, it, so we, we a there are no parameters they can, you know, under their justifications, they can use it for almost anything, including constant monitoring of employees. And, and B, we don't know how they're using it unless unless it happens to, to you know, cross in front of our eyes in a civil service appeal. Right. So what happens next? Um, uh, possibly nothing. I mean, we've uh, called out the city on questionable surveillance practices in the past, and there's not always a clear response um, from either the, the mayor's office or the city council. So what's next might be more of an institutionalized use of this system for employee discipline. Hmm. Um, we, we don't really know, but we'll, we'll keep looking into it. I, yeah, I mean, I will say that um, in the past, when Michael's done reporting on uh, on, on surveillance, we did uh, we did often hear a more kind of forceful response from from the city council. But uh, we're in this moment right now where people are very worried about crime, and I think the city is seeing that. Well, you know, uh, maybe 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 the politics have changed over the, the past year, year and a half, and uh, maybe maybe surveillance creep is not something that people are so worried about anymore because of, of all the carjackings that are happening across the city. Okay. Michael, it's a great story. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guest this week, our government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein, education reporter, Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. 
Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. Marta, in education, there was a grant that was automatically given straight over to OPSB. And at the last council meeting, they had a resolution to insert the city into that as a go-between now between this money and OPSB. Can you explain the background? This is the Harrah's money. Can you explain the background of this? Yeah, so part of um, when Harris came into the city, part of um, their, you know, agreement or um, operations within the city was to give an education grant every year. So since 2004, that money has gone directly to the Orleans Parish School Board. But when Harris signed a new lease in 2020, um, the language in that lease kind of broadened um, the city council's ability to uh, spend that money in, in as long as they were spending it, you know, on, quote, education so that didn't necessarily mean it had to go directly to the district. Last week, the outgo or two weeks ago, the outgoing council um, proposed a new resolution that inserted the mayor's office of youth and families into this process um, where they would all be at the table along with the school board, but it's no longer directly going to the school district um, as, as to what to do with these, you know, approximately $3 million in Harris funds. Was it tied to uh, revenue? net revenue of Harrah's? Was, was there a set amount or was it, is it always part and parcel of, of how they, how they operate and what that's a great question. I don't actually know the answer to it. I'm not sure if Charles does. I believe it's a flat amount per year. Mm. All right. So the, the council vote happened a while ago. What's the school district trying to do about it now? Yeah. So the council or the, the district came back this week. Um, board members had some pretty strong words for the council. Um, I think they both, you know, they felt surprised this was unexpected um you know they they knew that this harris money wasn't a guarantee based on what's happened over the last two years with that new lease um council members clearly had new priority education priorities um very interested in spending early childhood education versus you know directly to the district but council members had some strong or school members had some strong words i think my favorite including remember jc ramirez's description of what he described as a hot mess express. So um, it'll it'll be interesting to see if they do go ahead and pass um, a resolution or something asking the, the council to, you know, consider giving this money back to the district. Do you get a sense that with the new makeup of the council that that's likely to happen? You know, I'm not quite sure at this moment, but um, it certainly is interesting that they pass that um, motion the outgoing council pass on our last, you know, meeting, right. um, and, and we'll see with these new members. My, I anticipate that the council is not going to agree with the school board on this, should the school board pass it, mm. um, and that the council's response will be, you know, we didn't, we didn't create a, we didn't create a system where the school board can't get this money. We created a, we created a more inclusive process 
um, that, that could, you know, incorporate things that are not run by the school board, like early childhood education. So, you know, just, just as a brief aside, early childhood education is mostly um, operated under the, under the authority of, uh, you know, independent nonprofit groups and not the New Orleans Public School District. Um, so that I think the council's response and the city's response will be if the school board is able to make a case that its uses are the best uses of this money every year, then they'll get the money. And, and if they're not able to make that case, then they won't. Um, so, so, you know, I, I, I really doubt that the council will go back on this. I think the, 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 the early childhood education piece is fascinating because I get, like y'all mentioned, it's, um, it's pretty, you know, a pretty privatized process in terms of, you know, I guess all the money that we're putting into it is basically just paying for these kind of $15,000 a year spots in these, you know, private early childhood education courses. Um, what is the attitude among like board members in terms of, you know, whether that's, you know, the right investment or whether more of that money should be coming to the K through 12 schools. I mean, is there discussion about that, that level of funding? I, I, yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say that school board members and Marta can probably answer a little bit more fully, but before she does, I, I will uh, give, give a, a not as good answer, but I, I would imagine that the school board members are certainly in favor of early childhood education programs, but they see it as their job to, uh, to, you know, protect um, and fully fund the programs that they oversee. Uh, and that includes things like the Travis Hill School at the jail, which is where um, a lot of this money went in the past. Exactly what Charles said, um, you know, obviously they're in support of early childhood education. Just students or children who have had that in their lives um, fare a lot better, um, both in school overall and in life overall, right? So they're absolutely advocates of that. But like Charles said, it's not their prerogative and nor can they use K through 12 funding for pre-K education directly. Although many of the charters um, that operate in the city right now do run uh, pre-K four or pre-K three programs. Hmm. And so where you can kind of fund that is, you know, you, you're paying for your building, you're paying for operations. Um, you can't use K-12 funding for staff, but you know, you're keeping the lights on. So that's kind of hmm. offsetting that cost in those early childhood programs that schools are running. Yeah, and to get to the broader question I think you're getting at, Michael, um, so the, the whole, the kind of the whole system from the federal government on down, uh, it was designed around, uh, you know, public money and public systems supporting K through 12 rather than, right. rather than you know, pre-K three through 12. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the, the sort of pre-K three, pre-K four has always been, has always been sort of kind of treated as an as an as an extra you know we'll we'll fund it with a grant here and a grant there but it's not built into the to the formal system at, at the federal state or local levels you know on that note the council um has put an item on the ballot for a, a, a pre-k millage that would um, help open up a lot of seats um and with the state match it would open even more seats if that passes in april yeah and i would say i would say additionally um that um you know, should that millage pass, OPSB is going to have a much better argument for uh, this Harris money going to the Travis Hill School and the truancy program instead of early childhood education. In other council and school district news, there's a special council meeting next week on violent crime in the city. And it sounds like some school officials might be planning to attend this and discuss. Yeah, I mean, I would not be totally surprised if, uh, if, if a few board members did show up. Um, you know, based on the way they were speaking on Tuesday, 
you know, they certainly don't want to lose this Harris funding. And, you know, they're, they're saying if we're seeing a rise in violent crime and if we're worried about children and our kids who aren't in school, then why are we going to take money away from the, the school at the jail, the truancy program, um, the student support office? Um, they see those as primary functions to support and help kids stay in school. Okay. And tell us now about COVID numbers. They were, they dipped. They did. COVID numbers, cases dipped, right? So we're down from 2,200 cases to 1,600 cases in schools. Uh, That's between students and staff. Um, But quarantine numbers shot up uh, more than doubled to about 4,300, which I believe is, that's got to be close to 10% of the school population, which is probably just a simple factor of, you know, kids being back in school. Um, And I'm sure anyone out there with kids or anyone who knows people with kids is, you know, seeing your one kid gets home one day and then the next day your other kid's school closes. It's just, there's a lot of up and down for parents and students right now. And they also announced that they might be looking into booster requirements for their staff. Yeah. So it looks like the district is going to go ahead with that. But um, when the district makes such a requirement, because we're an all charter system that only applies to central office staff, that's only, you know, about 200 people, but I'm, presuming that some charter schools may take that stuff as well. Okay, thank you. Thank you. In a surprise move not announced prior to this week's council meeting, the New Orleans City Council on Thursday voted unanimously to rescind the resolution that added the mayor's office to the Harris Fund education grant process. All right, Nick, you've been following a federal civil rights trial against David Wade Correctional Center. Prisoners are accusing the facility of violating their civil rights through the use of excessive solitary confinement and inadequate mental health care. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. The trial entered its second week this week. What happened? Yeah, so this week we heard from uh, the contracted psychiatrist at the the prison, um, the only psychiatrist on staff there. And then we also heard from an expert witness who was the former chief psychiatrist of the Ohio Department of Corrections and uh, sort of helped implement the the mental health policy at, at uh, in Ohio um, in response to a consent decree that had found the, that Ohio prisons were not properly uh, uh, providing mental health care for prisoners there. Um, so those were sort of the two big, uh, big testimonies at the trial early this week. And that psychiatrist was a plaintiff's witness? Yeah. Um, so the psychiatrist is a plaintiff's witness. Um, his name is Gregory Seal, um, and he he is a contracted psychiatrist. He's not full time. He works um, just eighteen hours a month at the prison. So, and those are actually his contracted hours. Six of those hours are spent driving from Shreveport, where um, he lives, to the prison. So, really, you know, he's at the prison providing psychiatric care to patients twelve hours a month. So during his testimony, the the attorneys for the the plaintiffs were really trying to get at what those um, hours are spent doing, and kind of questioning whether or not that was uh, sufficient and adequate, specifically for the people being held in um, in solitary confinement at the facility. And paint the picture of what what the response was to that question, that line of questioning. So. It's based on his testimony, um, Dr. Steele will get to the prison and he goes to uh, what's known as a courtroom and they actually showed a picture of it. It's just a very small sort of cinder block room where he sits at a desk and they'll bring in prisoners who are on his his mental health caseload one by one. Um, They're fully shackled in, you know, in 
handcuffs a waist chain and 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 leg shackles um and then he'll generally meet with a prisoner for anywhere from from five to ten minutes dr seal testified that that a prisoner could potentially ask that that a security guard leave the room and that that it be confidential although the plaintiffs and, and other people involved in the lawsuit have have argued that that uh rarely if ever happens um so generally they they allege that a security staff is present for these brief meetings during which dr seal you know questions uh, a patient about about their mental well-being uh makes a diagnosis uh either prescribes or adjusts medication and then uh sort of move it on to the next next patient um and like i say you know david wade it, it, you know dr seal works for the entire prison, not just for the, the prisoners on restricted housing or solitary confinement. So, you know, David Wade has over a thousand prisoners and it's not entirely clear what his caseload is, but it's in the several hundreds. So yeah, though that that's kind of his his uh, his routine at, at the prison. All right. So the expert witness. Yeah, so the expert witness was, as I said, the the former uh, chief psychiatrist for the Ohio Department of Corrections. And she kind of had this this broad critique of of how the procedures and systems of mental health care at David Wade functioned um, kind of on a broad level. And, you know, you'll remember last week we talked about kind of from a prisoner's perspective, how these things worked or didn't work. And and her critique kind of focused in on the specific failings um, of of the system um, from her perspective. So in addition to, to being critical of the fact that Dr. Seal was only able to meet with, you know, patients for very short amounts of time and, and um, in her, from her perspective, you know, with far too long in between their visits. Um, she also had, had criticism for the mental health staff that, that works at the prison full time. The job of the mental health staff there is to kind of make regular rounds um, on these solitary confinement tiers and and check in with uh, prisoners, both who are on the mental health caseload and who aren't, and kind of do proactive surveillance to see whether or not they have any mental health needs. And so these are done in a number of ways. Um, They're kind of just regular, uh, more informal rounds. And then there are uh, interviews with segregated inmates, and also mental health progress notes. And so none of these things are done in a confidential setting. And that was uh, a problem for, for Dr. Burns. And then she said that, that basically they were totally cursory. So there's no level of detail in any, in any of these reports. They oftentimes were just a checklist that would say, you know, uh, certain aspects of, of a person's functioning were within normal limits. Sometimes, you know, the note at the bottom would say this person didn't didn't want to speak to me, but then with it, then on the checklist it would say, you know, uh, speech within normal limits. And you know, from Dr. Burns's perspective, this was inconsistent. And so what she she said was that if if this sort of proactive surveillance isn't taking place, then there's no way of informing. Uh, Dr. Seal, the psychiatrist, when he comes to do his evaluations mm. of any, you know, uh, abnormalities or any issues that that the staff might be seeing with people. So that was one of her her big issues. Did she also say when you say inconsistent, was, would she also go so far as to say inadequate? Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. So what uh, happened 
during Cross? You know, the, the prison is trying to make an argument that, one, these systems are in place and that, you know, if, if there are certain, you know, problems with them, they don't rise to the level of, of being unconstitutional. So, you know, they really focused on some of the things that Dr. Burns said were, you know, adequate. Um, one being when every prisoner is, is entered into the Department of Corrections, they get a, a, a mental health screening at intake at Elaine Hunt Prison. Um, and Dr. Burns doesn't have any criticisms of that for the most part. Really, her, her criticisms come more at David Wade, but the lawyers for the prisons are kind of making this case, well, there's this good screening that happens beforehand that then follows this prisoner to David Wade. You know, is it, shouldn't that be, you know, sufficient to, to diagnose these people? You know, they're also making the argument that restrictive housing and solitary confinement doesn't necessarily have detrimental effects for people's mental health. Um, and so that was pretty interesting. And, and actually, Dr. Seal, the contracted psychiatrist, when he was asked whether or not there were mental health risks associated with solitary confinement, he said no. And that, you know, was something that Dr. Burns said was not from her perspective true, that there was generally consensus among psychiatrists um, and uh, people in the mental health field that, that solitary confinement does have some risks. She did acknowledge that there were some studies and some people that, you know, contradicted that and, and argued that it, that there aren't serious risks that being placed in, in kind of general population is just as, as detrimental as, as solitary confinement. But, you know, it's worth pointing out that not only have there been many, you know, position statements by, by professional organizations, including like the American Psychiatric Association that warn against holding people with mental illness in solitary confinement for, you know, any period of time, let alone extended periods of time. But the Louisiana Department of Corrections also has provisions in their policies that are supposed to limit the amount of time and the, the uh, frequency in which people with serious mental illness are placed in solitary confinement. So there's some sort of balancing act happening where the department is on one hand, making an argument that maybe being held in solitary confinement isn't so bad for people's mental health, while also acknowledging that they are trying to do a better job of, of reducing mm. the use of solitary confinement and also putting kind of safeguards in place for uh, people with mental illness going into solitary confinement. Mm. Yeah, which you know seem, seems like a contradiction and seems to me like a contradiction. But I think, I think what, what we're seeing here is that the prison system, their job in order to win this case is not to prove that they're a model system, not to prove that they're the gold standard. Um, their job is merely to prove that they, they have not been operating in a way that can be considered constitutionally inadequate. Um, so they could very well argue, yes, we adopted these policies because there's always room for improvement, but um, you know, given that there's a question about, you know, there, there is allegedly a scientific question about whether or not this is actually uh, causing, you know, severe adverse impacts, um, that particular part of this, we can't be found constitutionally inadequate based on something where, you know, science has, has yet to make a, a, a determination about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that sort of 
also as it was another important point for Dr. Burns to make is that, you know, she's seen other, how other systems work. And I think that sort of comparison is going to be important for, for plaintiffs to, to make if they want to win this case is that David Wade in, is in particular um, in how poorly they administer mental health care. Um, so, you know, one of the things she said was that, you know, the, the prisoners aren't receiving, prisoners on solitary confinement aren't receiving any uh, sort of therapy, group therapy, counseling. Um, it's all medication. And she said, you know, other systems are able to do this. They're able to, there's kind of special high security furniture and certain, you know, you can have booths where security is can see inside and is present but can't hear what's going on. So you still have these confidential settings um, where people can receive care. And she said, you know, that happens in, in other places, but but it's not happening here. Okay. Uh, what happens next in the trial? So the plaintiffs will continue to call witnesses, um, I think, into next week. Then, after, like I said, it's a, it's a four-week trial, so there's still two more weeks after we complete this week. And then the prison will put on its case and, and we'll hear, uh, I'm sure, a very different story about, um, about how things work there. Nick, do you know if the, if, the, if the prison is going to be calling prisoners as witnesses? You know, I don't. That's a very good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. They may have put their witness list online. Okay. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. All right, everybody. Be safe. Thanks, everyone. Have a good right, week. Everyone. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Marta Jusen, Nick Crestel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>